to Everyday Theology, where we don't tell you what to believe or why to believe it, but rather explore our Christian beliefs and why they matter for us in relation to God, to creation, and to others. My name is Aaron Ross. Welcome back to Everyday Theology. Uh, This time around, I'm lucky enough to have two guests, and we're going to be talking about a book they've just recently co-written coming after another book that they co-wrote and talking about a lot about the topics surrounding the book, why the book was written. But I'm very thankful today to have Scott McKnight and Laura Beringer on the podcast with me. So welcome, both of you. Well, thank you. And I just want to make sure you know that Laura is my daughter. Yes, I do. And I was going to point that out too. And Laura, did I say that last name right? Because I always feel like an idiot when I say someone's name wrong. No, you, you know, did it. You did it. You got it. I look on YouTube and I try to find ways that people have said names and I still mess it up. So, but thank you again, both. Let me just give you a quick introduction. Uh, for those who don't know, Scott McKnight is professor of New Testament at Northern Seminary. He's a recognized authority on the New Testament, early Christianity, and historical Jesus. Uh, he's written more books than most people have read in their life uh, and over 90 books, including this new one now here that we're talking a little bit about Pivot and a church called Tove. We can talk a little bit about both. Laura um, is a teacher and co-author of a church called Tove and this book Pivot. She is also a children's ministry curriculum with Grow Kids and co-authored the children's version of the Jesus Creed. Um, again, Scott and Laura, thank you so much for being here. I'm going to dive in and just ask for either one. All these questions are just going to be, I'll let you figure out who wants to answer specifically, but you wrote a church called Tove, and you know from all the stuff that you've written here that I've read about this new book that's forthcoming, once you had this book written, you had a kind of a pouring out of people telling stories, kind of resonating, feeling the struggle of kind of church abuse, power abuse, a lot of different kinds of abuses. And then you you both decided at some point, well, maybe we should write a book on the practices to help churches transition to a better church culture. What what kind of led you down that path to go, we don't think there's resources out there. We need to write something because you're almost shocked, right? How many people were reaching out to you or maybe not shocked. I don't know. Yeah, we, I kind of buckled my seatbelt and expected anger like some some backlash maybe and we we got some of that but you are correct that we received an outpouring of stories and uh, requests for podcasts and interviews and events and webinars and seminars and um there was a question that became frequent as as people started to, as they read a church called Tove and they had time to absorb it and talk about it with um, those they, the coworkers or others, and people started asking us, well, how do we do this? We read about, we read your book, A Church Called Tove. We read about the circle of Tove and the habits of goodness that resist toxicity. So how do we do that? How do we form goodness cultures? How do we... Um, what red flags should we look for? And those questions became more and more frequent as time went on. And 
are what led us really to do a deeper dive into that topic. And that's where Pivot started. And it's our best yeah. attempt to answer yeah. those. We got, at times, I mean, for 12, 15 months, we were getting three to five stories a week. Wow. And uh, most of them were, almost all of them, 99% were power abuse stories. Hmm. And uh, so we, it was, uh, it was alarming because really, you know, the Willow Creek story was, I mean, it was power abuse clearly, but there was sexual underpinnings right. for everything. Yeah. The Catholic church was sexual. The Southern Baptist church stories were, were sexual. So there was a lot of sexual problems that were being revealed in churches on the part of leaders in their abusive relationships. But we were a little bit surprised by the inundation of power abuse stories in churches. So, um, I, of course, students are asking me these questions in my classes. I teach ministers. So I started talking more about power abuse. And we read Diane Langberg. And I read a really good book. Can't remember the guy's off. It was a German guy um, uh, who wrote for the. Um, uh, the international churches, you know, the ecumenical associations uh, on power in the New Testament. And it was very helpful for me to get some thoughts going. So, yeah, let's actually talk about that word, because in, in Pivot, you you actually say where you have a section where you, where you devote to talking about power, and you actually say that power is not inherently evil. And I feel like there are kind of two spectrums of people, a bifurcation when we talk about power. There's either that kind of group that power is not a bad word, it's just what is or what isn't. And then there's the other group that every time that power is brought up, it's brought up within a negative connotation, right? Because with power comes abuse, or with power comes control, or with power comes all these other kind of negative things. And when you said that power is not inherently evil, really the question kind of came to mind, well, how do we talk about power in healthier ways that we can recognize power exists without falling into the traps of some of the other things that I want to ask about, like resisting leader culture or uh, loyalty culture, these kind of terms that you bring up. How do we talk about power in a healthier way? Well, um, it's, it's a good question. It's a very important topic, and, and it's one of our pr uh, priorities uh, that has to be discussed in a church if you're going to have a Tove culture. But um, for some people, power is sort of like money. Everything about money is evil. And my experience with people who are angry about power is that they want the power. <laughs> and they and they lost it so therefore they're against it and that you know that's not very helpful because you know Diane Langberg is is not entering into this philosophical discussion of power like someone like uh, that Martha Nussbaum would enter into instead Diane recognizes that everybody has power hmm. and once you begin with this is that you know people like to distinguish between power and authority and and there's important uh, distinctions there, but it's only in an arcane group of philosophers who actually uh, agree with all with these definitions. And of course, they don't agree with one another even. But 
you and I and Laura, we have power, right? We have power to do things, to influence, et cetera. So I wanted to map what I thought was a Christian, in some ways, a Christian revolution in understanding how power is supposed to work for Christians. Okay, so let's just say we begin with the fact that God is the creator of all, and he sends his son, and his son experiences crucifixion at the hands of his own creation. Right, Something is going on here that's a revelation of what God wants us to know. So I began to break this down into, and I'm a New Testament professor, so I like prepositions, okay? So there's a power to, this is the recognition that we all have influence. We have a power to do something. Let's say parents mm, yeah. have power. Laura has power over her beagles at times. Um, <laughs> then, then we have power over, which is sort of the Roman stereotype that Jesus interacts with the disciples in, in Mark chapter 10, where Jesus says, you know, this is the way the Gentile rulers act you know, that you want to be sitting at the left and in the right, and that they they want to lord it over other people. In fact, that's a word used in the New Testament pretty distinctively, lording it over other people. Mm. It's the same word we use for lord. All right, so there is power to and there's power over. Power over is distinctively unchristian. To dominate other people is a, dis is a distinctively unchristian action. Now, at times we have to assert our will. Uh, that's not the same as power, and it's when you can actually control someone. Then the third one is a power with. This is the beginnings of a Christian revolution, is when we have power and we choose to share it with others because we believe it's redemptive in a situation or a condition mm -hmm. or a school or a church. Yeah. We share it. So in other words, we both sit on the platform. And then finally, there's a power for others. So power to, power over, power with, power uh, for. This is when I have the power and I get off the platform and I let you be on the platform. I've surrendered the power to you. And this is exactly what Jesus does in Mark chapter 10. I did not come to be served. I came to serve and give my life a ransom for many. This is what Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11 teaches, is that though he was God, I mean, it's a concessive participle, so we don't know for sure that though is, <laughs> is the proper interpretation. But uh, in fact, Michael Gorman says, because he was God, mm -hmm. he gave himself up and took on the form of a slave, even to the point of a cross, and then was exalted. That is a revolutionary understanding of power yeah. is to surrender it for the redemption of others. So we believe that power has to be discussed. But, you know, power, a good definition of Christian, a Christian definition of power is a wonderful idea, as C.S. Lewis said, like forgiveness. It's a wonderful thing. It's a lovely idea until you have something to forgive. <laughs> and, right. and power is a wonderful idea until you have to surrender it. It's it's a nice discussion if it doesn't have anything to do with me. But the minute yeah. I have to surrender it to someone I don't want to surrender it to, or in a situation I don't want to surrender it in, that's when it starts to become Christian power. 
Yeah. I, so much that when you were halfway through that, I wanted to say, I, it kind of sounds like Gorman's understanding of kenosis, right? The way in which uh, yeah. we think yeah. about God giving up God's self, uh, something other than, yeah, I don't want to even get, this is not the point of the podcast, but here I am wanting to bring things back to Gorman and kenosis again, which happens too often. Uh, I, I really appreciate that. And it brings me to another point that you both bring into the text again, but it's a question that, again, I'm trying to not ask questions specifically where you're answering from the book. I want people to read your book. But one part, as I'm reading, as I read the copy that it was sent to me, you know, it it is that nagging question. So much of this is going to be kind of crafted or created by those with the power in the church, right? Mm-hmm. Like a community to create a church called Tove, to actually create a, a church filled of goodness and graciousness is going to be one crafted from those in positions of power. What do you say to someone who might pick up either a church called Tove or now pivot with these practices for creating these spaces who are not in positions of power? Maybe there's someone at a church who's just, uh, you know, they they volunteer every Sunday, they're faithful volunteers, and yet they feel like they're stuck in this place where they don't have a voice or they can't say something's awry here or there is power abuse. I mean, how do we think about that in relation to these practices that you're proposing? That's a really good question. And we, um, part of pivot is addressed to the whistleblower, if you will, the person that's not in power And you're right, the farther away from power you are, the less influence you are going to have over decisions. But you may very well see red flags. Sometimes they're hard to see, but you may see them. And we have encouraged those that we've met, for example, um, to form a coalition. Um, My dad coined the term, create your own pocket of Tove in your own community and focus on living living out goodness in your community and maybe growing it. And hopefully over time that will stir something and cause some sort of um, um, revolution maybe over time in your church or in your organization or, or in your school. Um, but we we have talked to, that's been a surprise from a church called Tove is the number of people that have written to us that they might, they want to know what a red, like, what are some red flags I should look for? Or perhaps they see one, but they're not in power and they don't know what to do. Right. Well, the, um, you know, there's a a couple things to realize. If you don't have power, you don't have power. You got to, you got to realize it. And some people don't have power, but they want something to change and they fight for it. And the, the leaders, the people of power say, no, and then they're really mad. And you think, did you ever really think that you're going to be able to talk to that pastor and he's going to change his mind just like that on something he's been doing for 15 years? It's it's not likely. So we want to be realistic about people without power, um, forming pockets of Tove and being satisfied with a small group of people who are committed to these things with the hope that it will spread and maybe form some other pockets of toe. 
But, um, you know, uh, I would say 90% of the people that have contacted us are in positions of without power who want to see some changes or who got removed from power. But there's another side to this, and that is people with power who, let's say, catch the vision of transforming their church from toxic traits to tove traits, characteristics and virtues, are in for a very steep learning curve about what this is going to mean for them and for their mm. community. Because it's going to mean, Laura talks about this quite a bit, it's going to mean repentance. It's going to mean honest admission of some of the things that they've done wrong. And it's going to mean um, that they're going to have to move over on the platform or leave the platform for these things actually to take root in their church and begin to grow. And it's going to take a long time. So. Mm -hmm. Um, this is um, a transformation of a culture and no transformation happens because of a six-week sermon series. Right. Unless right. you're Jonathan Edwards and you preach one crazy sermon and you think <laughs> the whole the New England revival broke out because of it. So, I, That's a, a point, right? It, it almost to ask the question, and I know these are all fluid. These are all fluid questions, right? I mean, I, I'm in the midst of finishing up Russell Moore's new book now, right? His his new book on losing our religion, and and there's someone with power who quickly finds out how little power he actually had, in some sense, uh, to kind of use these terms, and as has at a point decided to leave the Southern Baptists, right? At what point do we say, hey, we've given, as to use the phrase that you guys put in the book, give Tove space to flourish. At what point does it become not, not sufficient to stay there? Because what I love about what you're saying is it's not a throw up your hands and leave, right? We're not saying, look, if you just see a red flag, just take off. Or if you see a red flag, Go and confront the power, and if you don't get the answer you want, then leave. It's a longer, longer process. But at what point do you say for people who have said, I've been working on these practices, or maybe they'll pick up the book and they'll work on those practices, creating that pocket of Tove, and then it's a year, two years, three years down the road, and there is still this spiritual abuse and power abuse that happens when's the right time or, or, or how do you help people kind of say, okay, well, we've given Tove space in this place and the space is resistant to that. It's a fluid question. I think it's also a fluid answer. Again, this is a question that we've had repeatedly over the last few years too, is, you know, I'm in this church and this is what's happening. And it sounds to us like power abuse. Should I stay? Should I go? I don't know what to do. And I think it's, I think that answer is different for each person in each situation. Um, like we talk about in Pivot and in Tove, it's surrender to the spirit and, and listen and um, go where he guides. And it might be different for everybody involved too. What would you say, dad? Well, yeah, I would agree with that. Um, 
But um, I would say that people need to be realistic. Number one, follow the procedures of the church as much as possible if you actually want to propose constructive changes. You know, like you say, I think that there's power abuse going on. I need to follow the procedure. If you just go to Twitter, you're probably going to be done uh, right. within a week. Okay, so follow the procedures. Secondly is have a goal of being heard, not of changing the congregation or the church or the pastors or the leaders. Mm. You want to be heard. Now, this this is an accomplishment to be heard. And I don't mean, okay, they called you into the, I have a student who's a wonderful leader she is and she was she had some concerns at a church legitimate these aren't you know bogus you know like i want to change our view of eschatology um right it was she had a concern she went to the elders and she said it was like talking to the walls because it was very obviously that they were only doing what they knew they had to do but they didn't have a a ripping concern for what i had to say all right that that can happen. So you have to put yourself in a position, you have to work at being heard. And then the third thing is, I think you should give yourself a time limit that I will work at this for a year, 15 months, and I'm going to measure appreciable results by the following three things. If they don't happen, I'm going to leave. Hmm. And I think that's realistic. Um, and I think in most cases, frankly, for people without power, it'd be wiser to leave right away. Hmm. Yeah, it's, it is a tough question, right? And it's one of those, you know, as, as the Pentecostal that I am, of course, your section, of course, relying on the Holy Spirit, you know, that is such a resonating reality for me as a Pentecostal, but it's also one of those things that, I appreciate that it is fluid because it, it seems that we've lost the art of both listening to the work of the spirit in staying or leaving, but also just the wisdom of when to and why to. It, it, it feels like we've, in outrage culture, we can easily go one thing and I'm done, or in the loyalty culture, which I also want to talk about that you guys mentioned, the loyalty culture just says, well... It's for the greater mission, right? It's for the greater good of the gospel. Like it's okay if there's abuse over here because three people raise their hands on Sunday to get saved over there, right? And and I think we can recognize one without throwing out the other that there can be good of the gospel by also saying it's time to go. Um, oh. What you you mentioned three things to resist, and I. And I bring these up because you talk about resisting celebrity culture alongside resisting loyalty culture and leader culture. And it's interesting because I think if we were to kind of pose those three things, maybe it's just me, you know, on a poll to churchgoers or to church staff or leaders, you know, if it's a, which one of these should we do, A, B, C, and then D is all of the above, we'd probably get a lot of resist celebrity culture. But the other two people would look at and go, well, loyalty is good in the church and leadership is good in the church. So why would I resist those things? Can you maybe explain a little bit what you mean when you say resisting loyalty culture and resisting leader culture and how we do that in a space of kind of creating practices of Tove? 
regarding loyalty culture, this one became personal for me. And this is what, this is in the line of what we're talking about in Tove and Pivot. When the Willow Creek story broke, and I don't believe I had even said anything publicly at that point, but I know my dad had a blog post that went somewhat viral and I was connected to that because he's my dad. I had a um, a, a good friend, number of good friends at Willow Creek sort of break up with me, if you will. Um, and be, one of them, you know, just said our, our family's on the opposite sides of these events and I can't be associated with you in so many words. And mm-hmm. that's what we're talking about is like, well, hang on a second. Shouldn't, shouldn't our mission be justice? Shouldn't our mission be caring for the, the people that are hurt? And, and, you know, like there's, there's some really wounded people here and the church is not taking care of what they did. So it's not like we mean it's loyal. It's an unhealthy loyalty. Now, loyalty is, uh, I think if, if you had the capacity to get underneath the surface in a church, you would discover in most, I'm talking about churches, Christian institutions, et cetera. You would discover that most of the time when loyalty is brought up. It's brought up by people in power whose power has been threatened. Mm, Right. So, and it's been threatened by a very difficult situation. Let's just say that you've suddenly, there have been some allegations against the pastor and someone in the inner circle hears about it. And they've discovered that the approach that the church has taken is far from transparent, deceptive, Mm. and let's say being laundered by some money, uh, something Mm. like this, all right? This is where loyalty is going to come up. The leader, the toxic leader is going to say, you know, you're either with us or you're against us. A mocking of the words of Jesus. that's where we noticed the word loyalty in our research in the Tove book when we started seeing loyalty as a toxic trait in churches. And the opposite was to do the right thing at the right time, which is, is what justice means in the Bible. So they were actually being told to be silent, not tell the whole truth, you know, that the Lord called this person to another church. Actually, they got fired for mm. sexual aggression. Okay. Yeah. So loyalty to the church, because this might hurt our reputation. All these things get intertwined. And that's where we saw the word loyalty. Now, the leader one, people are going to, comp- people can complain about what I say about loyalty and I mean, about <laughs> leadership. And, and Laura, I don't even know if she agrees with me. She was, she was at Willow long enough to be sucked into the leadership culture theory at the school, at the church. But to me, here's what happened. I'm old enough to remember when no pastor saw himself as a leader. They Mm -hmm. led, but they saw themselves as pastors. They saw themselves as preachers, as teachers, but not leaders. And certainly their understanding of leadership was not connected to Jack Welch and business models. Right. 
Right. Okay. It was in the late 80s under Ray, after Reagan that I began to notice and CT had a classic article of a pastor dressed in a certain kind of outfit that showed that he was worthy of respect. Hmm. And it was the business culture mentality. And then all of a sudden, all these discussions of leadership, and we start seeing this at Willow Creek. We see this with uh, Craig Rochelle. We see this with Andy Stanley. We see this with Rick Warren. All these big churches are talking about leadership. Well, yeah, um, this bothers me. It bothers me because the the categories being used for leadership, and they can be helpful and wise, are coming out of the business world more than they're coming out of the Bible. They all this stuff needs to begin with the Bible, and and, and form a genuine model of what a Christian pastor leader in a church is supposed to be like. And only then do we, let's say, pin uh, some uh, medallions from the business world onto what, onto the construct that is formed by Christian Christian theology. Let's say the life of Jesus. Um, that's where leadership, to me, has gone wrong. And I stand with Eugene Peterson, who griped about the leadership culture in the Presbyterian Church for thirty years. So I know I have someone on my side and he's dead. He's dead and he's gone, he's gone to heaven and he know, now knows that he's right. And he sent me a message and told me that, that I should keep saying what I'm saying. No arguments for me on that one. Yeah, that's right. It came from heaven. Well, it's, it's interesting you say that, you know, because again, I, I both agree, but also I, I don't know if this came up at all. Maybe this may be more of the context that I found myself in, both in kind of theological spaces, context, academic spaces. As then along with leadership comes two other words uh, that, uh, and maybe it's leadership and loyalty, but this honor and respect culture that things that people demand or are demanded honor and respect because they are the leader. And because they're the leader, you must honor and respect, which means anything outside of just saying yes to what they want, or I'll do what you need, or whatever you say goes, now becomes, well, you're dishonoring or you're disrespecting the leader. And this kind of plays down the dominoes, domino effects to, well, you're, you must be, you know, a dirty sinner. You're, how dare you, right? You've, you've disrespected the leader. You can't, you can't be a part of this. Anything you have will be taken from you, right? I don't know if that that came up at all, but it's just kind of like a typical thing that kind of has surrounded my world when it comes to leadership is these two words come up a lot, honor and respect. Well, um, I don't know if Laura's thought about this, but something comes to mind. For instance, we, we're going to be getting a new president at our seminary. He or she has my respect from the beginning. But he or she will have to earn honor and genuine respect. I will respect the position. But if you abuse your position, then you're going to lose some respect and honor from me about it. Um, and it's not like I sit around trying to second guess presidents or deans or provosts. I don't. I, I want them to do their job so they'll leave me alone and then I can do my job. <laughs> so, um, but I, Here's something that I have found so often. This is so true so often. 
people who are trumpeting the need for honor and respect are probably people who don't deserve it. People mm. who deserve it don't have to trumpet those terms. Yeah. Yeah. So it sounds very authoritarian. It reminds we just finished the documentary Shiny Happy People. And I think mm-hmm. it those terms just resonated with me along like in conjunction with that documentary because that's those t- they're used to control people and to keep them in line yeah. and they won't speak up just because they have so much respect and honor for the position they're not allowed they would never do that because they respect it too much yeah yeah it's it's one of those things that even in in conversations because i i say i, I find myself in a very great uh culture where i am with my own uh em- employer slash boss so this is nothing about that but it's interesting because my wife and i have talked a lot about it in our conversations and and similar to to kind of what you were saying there laura and also scott which you said earlier is that we found that it's hard for some people to recognize that respect is earned by relationality with people other than that title right so when you talk about the title yes president of the united states should have a, a respect sense to it but me personally with someone to respect someone i need to have some kind of relationship with them to have community with them to have engagement with them but to respect them just because of a title provides this space as you were saying laura for abuse right like well because you are president or because you are pastor because you are leader these things are required of everyone underneath them and and that gets to the point where we find these abuses, these unchecked abuses, right? Like they can do what they want when they want. I I will kind of go down that road and just say, you know, we talked a little bit about the bottom up approach. Like, what do you do if you're a person who's in these scenarios? But what if you're the the pastor or the word that, I mean, I in my undergrad, we didn't talk about leadership, we talked about servant leadership. It's kind of the tack on to leadership, right? Or the tack on maybe to being a servant. Let's let's just throw leader on there and then we can kind of have it both ways. Um, But what if you are that person, you are an authority, you are over the church and you're starting to see these own things in yourself or in your own church world. What would you say to someone out of the practices that you mentioned in Pivot, out of what you've discussed in a church called Tove, What's the beginning point for someone who just goes, enough is enough. We've got to fix this, including their own position of leadership. Well, uh, I don't know if this is one that Laura wants to answer. If she wants to pass it on to me. The first thing I would say is uh, if a pastor, a leader with authority and power, authority is authorized use of power. realizes that they've got to make changes the first thing that that leader has to do is step aside sufficiently so that other people are going to have a significant voice of power or authority in a context in other words you uh, you surrender a distinct element of the church's ministry let's say 
who's going to preach on Sundays or who's going to do this, who's going to do that. And you say, okay, you get to choose that. And I'm going to support your decision. They have to practice surrendering authority. Then they have to practice losing because if you don't lose ever, you know, like students will disagree with me. I have old students, you know, I don't have 18 year olds anymore and they'll disagree with me in <laughs> class. And sometimes I'll think, I'll say to them, you know, I think you're right. I think what I just said is not as good a framework as what you just said there. And I, I should be, approach it from that angle. That goes a long way in a classroom for students to know that they can actually contribute to the substance of what's going on. And you have to practice losing. I've even told, okay, I, I had a pastor student who was at a big church and uh, he, his church was growing. He said, what can I do now so that I don't turn out like Pastor XXX who's just all over the newspaper now? And I said, do you ever lose conversations in your board meeting? He said, no. I said, well, I want you to go lose one. He said, why would mm. I do that? I said, just so they know they can win. So that you mm. can, they can know that you aren't always right. He said, well, that seems kind of artificial. I said, well, make sure it's not artificial. Just surrender sometimes to other people making decisions that have mm. authority. So I, I would say those two things. This yeah, is a tough Lord, one. You, have a... you know, because the reason it's tough is because that's what it's going to take to lead yeah. toward Tove is when people at the top learn that it's not all top-down authority. That's that's what yeah. that's what it takes. I am encouraged by the number of um, folks that we've talked to over the last few years who are willing to take an honest look at themselves, which may be the hardest part of all. We we mentioned a case study in Pivot um, that came from a book called Renovation of the Church, and the pastors they were co-pastors took their their church, their entire culture through a, a, tra a, a deep, deep transformation. But it all started with confronting who they had become first. And they, they used terms like, we had to confront our runaway ambition. We felt really mm -hmm. important. Willow Creek knew us as up and coming leaders and it made us feel, it made us feel really good about ourselves. And yeah. I think that's I think that's where it has to begin is is who am I and confronting that first and then transformation can begin. And and Laura, tell them about uh, the Tove tool. We developed a Tove. So my dad met with a pastor um, down here in the Chicago area who said, "Okay, we like your circle of Tove. You need an assessment." And we're like. Hmm. Well, we're not psychologists, but, but <laughs> we didn't, we're not like, we can't statistically norm anything, but what my dad did, the theologian is he wrote a list of questions and then I divided them up on, based on the circle of Tobe. So for example, it, it's like a self-assessment for your church or your community or your group or your leadership team, whatever, um, assess how we're doing in Injustice, assess how we're doing and putting people first. Um, 
do we have a leadership culture that's getting a little bit out of hand? Is the institution's reputation more important than people? So hopefully that TOV tool, our prayer is that it will help um, those who use it take an honest look at the culture and where they're at and identify some areas of growth that hopefully will spark some kind of transformation or some kind of renewal or revival or um, growth towards Tove. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love that. It's really interesting because I do think that to your points earlier, it's hard sometimes for those people to see the red flags within their own spaces. Um, particularly, mm-hmm. I, I, I love that you use a lot of great analogies from churches and pastors who have engaged with you on this. Uh, but it seems particularly fraught within large megachurch tractional models in which things are go, go, go 24-7, the next best thing, the next greatest thing in the church, that oftentimes that time for reflection on not just does it work for butts and bucks, if it works for spiritual development, tends to be on the back burner. So how do you even help people see to slow down or, you know, maybe you don't need that attractional, the next service has to be better than the last one in terms of lights and sound and show. And how, how does people, how do people start that? I guess as part of the thing, because I think so many people are part of those churches and they just don't know, maybe they're afraid. I don't know. Afraid that if they slow down a little bit, that growth is going to stop or whatever it is that they want to say is going to slow down. Well, you know, you're right. I mean, they're, they're, this is risky. This is risky to transform a culture. And you're going to lose people and you're going to lose money. And you're going to lose butts in the pew. And you might not have your next building project meet its goals. But um, if you value things like empathy and grace and putting people first and justice and service and Christ-likeness and telling the truth, we believe the Tove tool will reveal areas in the church that need work. And if they don't, okay, you're lying. <laughs> you know, you're not telling the truth. Um, so to me, they, you're, you're going to find some things. And if those things don't make the leaders think, what are we doing that has led to this problem that we just don't show grace? in uh, the people who are employed by, at the church. They don't think we're gracious. What, what are we doing? If it doesn't lead to that, well, it's going to be a very difficult road to climb. But I think by and large, the Tove tool will, it will be risky for some churches. Um, they're going to see some things that are going to make them uncomfortable. They may want to stop f- filling out all the questions. They may hear some things they don't want to hear, but um, we think it will help churches tell the truth about themselves and realign their vision with, let's say, genuine biblical spiritual visions Mm. of what a church should be. I love it because even in a church called Tove and Pivot, it's clear that the definition of success of the church is not what's been defined by our megachurch culture of butts and bucks, um, but has been much more defined by spiritual discipline, spiritual growth, which 
is clearly not as quote unquote sexy as the the big church down the road or you know the new church building or whatever it is. Because I, I grew up in a an environment that was predominantly you know something was God ordained by how big it got. Yeah. yeah. If it was growing and there was more people, then God must. And it was the language that was used all the time, right? God must be doing something here because there's a hundred more people here this week than there were last week. All the while those abuses or that neglect of the spiritual disciplines or the neglect of the spiritual life of, of people was just sitting in the, in the background, not being touched, but because it grew, it was God ordained. It must be, it must be good. Right. I love that your books are pushing back against that. Your books are pushing towards something more, uh, within spiritual discipline and spiritual growth, something that as we, maybe this is just me and my own ponderings and musings, but as we see the decline in the number of people going to church, even with the rise of mega churches in America, that maybe, maybe we've just gone the wrong path and we need to go cut back and go, wait, this, this may not have been the thing that we thought it was to fix our church problem in America. But that's just my musing. There's no question there other than my musings. It's good. I, I like it. It's very good. You would, um, really like, you would really like the book Renovation of the Church. They took an attractional model and completely transformed it into a spiritual formation model church. Hmm. It, it's, oh. it's fantastic. I'm, I'm definitely going to have to get that. Um, I know our time is, is running up. Your book comes out on September 19th. Hopefully we've whet the appetite enough uh, for people with, with their questions and the spiritual practices, uh, these practices of Tove. I know it's available everywhere and anywhere. Is there any last thoughts or comments, anything I didn't ask or anything important to throw out there before we end today? I'm glad you brought up the date because I, I didn't know when the date was. We we normally will get books about a month before that pub date, and I, I have a feeling we could get this one a little bit sooner. So, and they sent out ARCs to all these people that we never we never got our own little bound copy of the <laughs> of the galleys. So so we're looking for a copy. But um, you know we really appreciate you interviewing and are doing this podcast. And, uh, you know, you had lots of good thoughts that will help as well. And because you're a practitioner, you have a pretty good feel for what these things are all about. Um, so we're just, we're just thankful that people will, will give um, Tove and Pivot a chance. And if you, um, if you take a look at the cover, you will discover that the last three letters of Pivot backwards spells Tove. <laughs> Perfect. I love it. Thank you both again so much. It's been a wonderful time and hopefully I'll have you back uh, in the future. Thank I'm you, sure Andrew. the next book that's going to come in a year, right? Are we no. planning on another? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> Thank you again. Thank you, Aaron.